Rick Madison, Rick and Friends, and hey, thanks for listening. Uh, today we have someone who, um, you know, I, I've met recently and uh, found out his background, and I just had to get him on. I mean, come on. Um, he's uh, he's now down at the food bank doing wonderful work, but uh, we stole him for an hour just to get his thoughts on some things. Percolating, uh, John Cabral, former director of emergency and ambulatory care, KGH, and then the former director of KGH. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Precious pleasure to be here. So, uh, John, right now you're doing some meaningful, wonderful work down at uh, the food bank. How, how is that going? Oh, it, it's been an amazing le- learning and an amazing experience. Um, about two years ago, I started volunteering with the food bank and uh, really enjoyed the people and the work that's being done down there and, of course, helping our community. Um, and then about five weeks ago, uh, the CEO for the food bank approached me and said, would you be willing to help uh, with covering for a sick leave for one of the director positions? And so I'm helping now to cover as director of operations. Uh, I'm working with a great team of people at the food bank um, and helping to coordinate the donations that are coming in for all the food that is required for our community. So it's been a great experience for me so far. It's meaningful work for you, isn't it? Oh, very much so. I mean, I'd have to say my entire career has always been in service to the public. Uh, as you mentioned, introduced me is that I worked in healthcare. Um, when I retired from healthcare, I thought I want to do something else, but I still want to be in service to the public. And when this opportunity came about, I couldn't say no. Well, it, it sounds like uh, you've really jumped into the role, and I know there's a lot of work to be done. So, you know, with, with your past, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of process and systems that you're able to bring over that you were, you were doing in healthcare, I would imagine. Like, there's some, there's some overlap there. Yeah, I think one of the things that healthcare is does very well is in developing processes and procedures and trying to standardize them as the best they can to try to deliver the best service possible in the, to or in healthcare for patients. For the food bank, it's about how do we deliver standardized service and, and to our clients that need food in the community. So there's a lot of those skills that I brought over from healthcare are very, very, very transferable to the food bank. Now, uh, let's talk a bit about, uh, you were at KGH, former director, and uh, I mean, that that must have been a really rewarding time for you um, because, you know, you work with a lot of great people down at KGH, I would imagine. Oh, absolutely. Um, we moved um, my down my family down here in 2002, that's when I started. And the role then was to help to transition from the old hospital into the Centennial Building. That's where the first emergency and ambulatory care was set up. And uh, getting to know the team that I was uh, working with, the physician group, um, and what I quickly learned and was awestruck by was the level of services that this community uh, has access to in terms of healthcare. There's an incredible group of healthcare professionals, uh, physicians, nurses, allied health, the entire team, they're doing an amazing job down there. And uh, in some cases, working under very difficult conditions, but doing an amazing job in providing patient care. It, it does seem like the Okanagan attracts its fair share of, of really world-class talent. Oh, absolutely. And I think uh, one of the best examples is our cardiac care program. 
Um, when that program was built here at KGH, they recruited some of the best people in the world, literally, to get that program up and running. Uh, and I would say that, you know, that, continue, that program continues to expand and bring in new surgeons. Uh, part of the excitement, I think, of, of coming to the Okanagan is, uh, it, in many cases at KGH, they're building something new. And so for, uh, depending on where you're at in your career as a specialist, if you're interested in a new, if you're a new graduate and you want to come in and build a program from the start, KGH and the Okanagan can be a very exciting place for you. Or even if you are uh, a very well-known and respected um, expert in your career, KGH again welcomes you and uh, wants you to be part of our community to help provide, bring that expertise to our patients. So, and it's um, and and I would imagine a lot of people don't even understand how much research is done at KGH. Oh yeah, I, another part of it was the linkages that are starting to develop between KGH and UBCO. Um, and so as the medical school and the nursing school graduates develop, they develop that close relationship with KGH and the university. And so there, I mean, I was involved in at least four clinical trials where we had to sign off that we would be able to conduct those clinical trials here at KGH and be part of the patient numbers that are part of that overall group. Uh, and uh, very exciting ideas are being put forward to, again, advance various medical procedures and technologies that, that KGH has been at the forefront. Uh, what would you say right now, and, and again, we've, we've heard of uh, different shortages and, and you know, basically some of the uh, stresses that the system is currently going through. Um, what would you say, and again, you've been removed from it for years, but is the morale still still up? Like, I mean, I imagine you still have linkages there. I would say that the people that are working there still are very dedicated and very caring for the patients. Uh, I, I think what happened is COVID presented another layer of stress to the people that are working there and to the system overall. Um, and I think the challenges there was... Uh, with COVID is that as you've got an experienced team of people and as they're ending towards heading towards the end of their end of their careers is that many of them may considered maybe early retirement. And I think we have known that many people in and experts in healthcare were considering uh, retirement, but probably putting that off for a few more years. I think COVID accelerated that decision to retire maybe a little bit earlier. And so there, there's always been kind of um, a pressure point to always want to hire new people into the system because we know that the turnover is something that happens in every industry. And so the important thing is how do we continue to grow the team we've got and what is the succession plan for the next group of, of people working in that area and managers and leaders for the healthcare system. It's interesting you talk about industries and how different ones were affected by COVID. Uh, the airline industry was one of them where a lot of people had, uh, you know, lots of frustration regarding wait times and everything else. But we saw the same thing when it came to the airlines was a lot of experienced people left that category saying, okay, that's enough of that. Um, it looks like there's a, 
probably a year or two years or they didn't even know how long it would get to rebound. So now we'll just take our package and go. And it seems to me like that experience is a really key part of this, which is when you have people with 20, 30 years experience, when they leave, that's, that's quite big shoes to fill, it seems. Um, absolutely. As you mentioned, the challenge in the airline industry, it's the same in health. Um, I think what I observed, again, within interior health was every manager was always thinking or there was a requirement to always be thinking about who's going to be the next leader. Who's going to be filling in that next manager role, that next program uh, development lead role? So you're always thinking of looking at those individuals and uh, within your organization and thinking who would be good to bring in, who could maybe we could bring in for a temporary assignment to stretch their skills and maybe give them an experience to maybe want to consider further management roles. Each diamond is uniquely different. It is special and beautiful because of its rarity. That is the power and magic of a diamond. A new store in Kelowna is open to showcase this symbol of love and commitment. Herrera, fine jewelry. The name in Latin means rare and exceptional. Much like a diamond is extraordinary and rare, just like her. Herrera, fine jewelry. Featuring Takuri, Noam Carver, Burks, and Simon G. Jewelry. It seems like some of the, uh, the requirements for education have become more strict or or longer i guess you could say like you and i were speaking uh, off off mic about uh radiology and and how that you know the, yeah. the some of the the practices have changed somewhat i think that is another another layer of the challenge in terms of of getting new people trained for their for their profession is that uh, various post-secondary institutions are increasing their requirements, uh, increasing the length of time for training. Um, and it does sort of beg the question about what information that they're adding in those additional years of training. And when you look at the workplace environment, are they truly using that additional training or could you do it where there's an opportunity if you work in a specialized area? And let's say that I finish my program uh, in pharmacy uh, and now I'm working in, in strictly in the cancer clinic. Can I take an additional specialized training in oncology that would be very applicable to that setting? And what would that training look like versus taking another two years of pharmacy school to be coming out with an additional, you know, uh, master's degree instead of a farm bachelor of science degree, and so those those are questions that I think that um, I wonder sometimes how universities and post secondary schools are considering what their programs need for the development of healthcare professionals and other professionals, uh, and and what they're actually doing in the workplace, how much consultation is going on between what we really need in the work environment and what they're being trained in at post-secondary training. Because, I mean, the people currently doing the job had less amount of, of years in, at that post-secondary. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I would think it's, it, it is, you raise a valid point about, how much more does that do those extra years give and is that is that actually applicable because we have a what i hear from from different sources is that 
we really need to accelerate uh, our feeder tube, for lack of a better term, into these specialized positions because we are facing shortages across. And there's different floors that are facing shortages. Mm -hmm. And what that ultimately does, and you've probably seen as a former director, is that it increases a profound amount of, of stress upon the people doing the job currently. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the longer the training, the harder it is to recruit people. Uh, the, the greater the gap between um, when you can get them hired and get them up and going in their particular roles. Uh, I, I would say, again, the other piece of it is the number of positions or uh, student seats that are available. Um, I would say that the demand for healthcare professionals, we probably had knew of what the demand was going to be. And it's not a surprise that all of a sudden we are in the healthcare crisis that we have been because we knew that the current workforce was aging. We also knew that we had to replace them, plus there was going to be growth in the healthcare sector. So inevitably we knew we would need more physicians, more nurses, more allied health individuals. Um, and so building those seats years ago in anticipation of this event would have been wiser planning. <laughs> Your diplomacy is wonderful. <laughs> so it, it seems to me like what you're suggesting is even, could we say as much as 10, 15 years ago, we saw this, this emerging, this population shift. And, and so knowing, and, and then again, building the platform or the structure foundation so that you can actually withstand this amount of demand on on really a labor shortage that was showing itself it's rearing its ugly head as much as and and we probably could venture to say 10 to 20 years ago i i don't i don't know but you were part of that planning i'm sure of you saw it coming well the demographics of baby boomers is well known and they're now into their 60s so as we well know that in the latter part of our our lifespan, we're going to use most of the health care. So in our last 10 years of life, we probably use 90% of our health care. This is predictable. So I anticipate that the demand for health care is only going to increase for the next foreseeable future, I would say again, 10 to 15, maybe even 20 years, whereas the baby boomers start to reach that part of the of their life where their demand for healthcare is going to be that much greater. So I think we're just seeing the very beginning of it, I think. I think in the next 10, 15 years, we're really going to see an, a doubling and even potentially a tripling of the demand on healthcare. And I think part of it is the fact that for years and years, we've invested in acute care settings. And um, I know the governments are moving towards uh, I guess, spending money more in community programs, but they've lagged far behind, I think, what it needs to be to support people to age well in the community. And I don't just mean our seniors, but even mental health. Um, a colleague of mine many years ago used the term that acute care is the overcapacity plan for our community. And what I mean by that is that it's not uncommon that patients end up in hospital. They're ability, uh, the care needs while they've uh, gone through the hospital setting have now reached the point they can't go back to 
living alone or living in a, alone in an apartment. They need another level of care. But there is a delay in being able to place that patient in the appropriate level of care. And as a result, patients spend um, weeks, potentially even months in acute care that don't, don't necessarily need an acute care setting. And it's a frustration and a huge issue for uh, experts and, and, and physicians and everybody else who works in acute care because now you've, you've done as much as you can from them in an acute care hospital and they need to be managed back in the community. And we just haven't built up the infrastructure to rapidly turn that patient back into the community, which is where they want to be. Right. And the ultimate goal of our healthcare system. So acute care is really that <clears throat> it's a barometer, really, of of how much capacity we have, because that is the the ultimate uh, as far as care is concerned. And so that is really um, a leading indicator of how well we're doing or where our capacity is at. Because if if ICU is is overburdened, then imagine the whole system is probably uh, indicative of that. You're absolutely correct because, you know, the goal is if they are at the ICU level of care, how quickly could we then move them on to an inpatient bed and then being able to move that patient from an inpatient bed then to a community setting, whatever that community setting is, is really the flow throughout the system. Um, and if there is a backlog anywhere in that point, then you will see more patients admitted in hospital. And then you end up with scenarios that you see all over the country where you've got patients in hallways. So, and, and, and patient in hallways is, is such a visual reminder. Mm -hmm. it, it really is. So where would people go if, if we had that infrastructure? What does that infrastructure look like? Oh, that's probably something that's beyond my level of expertise in terms of, but in terms of what we what we really see is the supportive housing in terms of individuals that could be uh, provided with care in a variety of health a variety of community settings. So it isn't just the the seniors' home that we need. There's other levels within the community that where if we were, had more individuals that could be uh, provided in terms of like um, I'm thinking of situations of seniors who uh, need to be checked on periodically. So more individuals are going into the home, more meal provision, more uh, cleaning of the home, uh, being helping, being able to help them exercise, that kind of scenario. But being able to have that check-in with for nurses three, four, or five times a day, I think there's a lack of capacity right now in the system and in the community to be able to say we can safely discharge this patient out of acute care and into community. So is is are we speaking the majority? And I, I don't want to do too broad with this, but is it 55 and up? that are we're really looking at as far as acute care is concerned, like as far as the, the bulk of the population, because we were talking about baby boomers and all that kind of thing. Is that, is that kind of that 55 to 75 is that age group? Is that who we're thinking of? That needs the care? That it needs that care to get out of acute care. Like, is that the, the majority of the population that's in acute care? I would say it's an older population that, 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 tends to be spending more time in hospital because we don't have appropriate care level or care support in the community. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, it's more that older population, I would suggest. 
So is there a model across the world of, of where we, like Sweden or some sort of Scandinavian country that, that has really figured this model out and said, okay, the, and, and they've perhaps moved to a two-tiered system, or is there another model out there that makes sense for us? I think a number of countries have experimented with different things. Um, you mentioned the Scandinavian countries. Um, my understanding of their programs, and I've not studied them in any detail because my focus was always on acute care, is that they have invested more heavily in community services and providing support to help people to age in their home as long as possible. Um, and I, I think that there that our governments and our healthcare leaders are looking at models like that and have looked at models like that. But I still think there we're in some ways are hanging on to our old way of thinking where we like the idea of investing in bricks and mortars. Uh, and a hospital is a very concrete example of that. It is difficult to identify that you have, you know, another 400 beds in your community that are being supported at another level of care. It, it it's not as um, what's what I say easy to take a picture of. <laughs> yeah, well, it's overwhelming to think of yeah. because it takes a lot of resources, and and again, uh, provincial government, federal government, that's probably willing to cough up grant money or well, ongoing funding. I would imagine. Yeah. I I would think governments are are trying to walk a very um, difficult tightrope in the sense of how much they need to invest in all the various programs. Healthcare is just one of the programs that the governments have to invest in. Um, increasingly, with right after COVID, healthcare has gotten a lot more attention because the public is seeing, look, we can't even ask, access the basics. And most recently, I think in our community, as I've heard complaints of people waiting six months to get a basic x-ray, right? Um, that would have been... And again, it's because of people leaving the community, uh, retiring from their, you know, their prospective professions that that limited the access to it. Um, but if we, again, had worked on other ways of training individuals, invested more in community resources, I believe we would not see as much stress on our acute care system. We're going to be back in a moment with uh, more John Cabral. Each diamond is uniquely different. It is special and beautiful because of its rarity. That is the power and magic of a diamond. A new store in Kelowna is open to showcase this symbol of love and commitment. Herrera, fine jewelry. The name in Latin means rare and exceptional. Much like a diamond is extraordinary and rare. Just like her. Herrera, fine jewelry. Featuring Takuri, Noam Carver, Burks, and Simon G. Jewelry. Uh, Rick Madison, Rick and Friends back again. Um, let's talk about this again, John. It's about that that two-tiered system and potentially maybe it's it's just eventually going to happen is that, that two-tiered system, which again, you know, it's a very volatile question for a lot of people, is will that in effect help our healthcare system, because currently, as you mentioned, um, you know, the, there's wait times, and and that's I think in a really indicator, a, a true measurement of of how a healthcare system is doing. Um, I'm getting reports just anecdotally from friends that say 14, 16 hours in emergency, 
and really never did get admitted. They were their names were written down by a security guard and not actually by admitting. And they're, you know, and again, it's it's nobody's fault at KGH. I'm not saying it is. I'm I'm talking about the systemic issue which we seem to be facing across Canada, across the world. Of is a universal healthcare system the right answer, and should we move to a two tiered? I'm still very pro a universal healthcare system and believe in the universality of what the programs can provide. That being said, I think there is a role for certain medical procedures, um, certain uh, testing that would be available. And I think we see examples of it already where we have private MRIs as an example. Uh, we have private labs. We have um, other examples of where the government has experimented with contracting out cataract surgeries. Um, so there is already a, a discussion about what, how we could integrate the private sector to be a parallel with the, uni- with the universal system. And I don't think that switching over completely to the private sector is the answer. I think the private sector, what it does well is care for patients that have very specific criteria, uh, that they can see their patients quickly in and quickly out. Once the patient becomes more complex or they have other comorbidities, and we mean other health factors that make having their particular test or particular procedure performed, Generally speaking, the private sector tends to shy away from those kinds of, of patients. And so they, patients with higher, more, uh, higher comorbidities really need to have another option. And I think the universal healthcare system is that option for. The other factor is how do we continue to fund the private sector piece of it? And I think governments have to be very careful about how how they are getting value for the money. And um, the way that they can do that is by uh, sort of providing a strong oversight in the private sector, uh, providing very key uh, indicators for them to report on, um, be it number of cases, number of infections, number, you know, all of those kinds of things that ensure that when the public, that they are getting the best care also in the private sector. So it's not just a case to hand it over. Uh, and I think we saw some of the gaps where if the government does hand over to private sector in senior care. So a number of years ago, we saw private seniors' homes being managed by private providers. And they were funded to a certain level. And, and I'm sure that private providers pr- did provide care to that level. But I don't think there was always as good an oversight on the part of governments of those private care facilities to ensure that they were meeting accreditation standards, to make sure that, uh, that care was being provided to the best that we could. And then to that ongoing negotiation about what can we do better and then governments to respond if it is a case that we need more hours of care. And I think that's what's, what COVID has sort of brought to the line is we probably need to look at additional hours of care because of the level of care and the, and the, the how sick patients are in, in long-term care. Um, years and years ago, long-term care patients were much better health overall. And now our long-term care 
care patients are living longer and as a result they're also more sick. And so the level of care that they need, even in long-term care, I would say is higher than it was 20 years ago. So it's interesting what you're suggesting is there's uh, these are all factors that have created this this uh, pig in a python, which is okay. which good, is good analogy, <laughs> which is really the the strain on this system is is being created by a number of things, which is the added education, um, the, the fact that people are living longer in long term care, um, the fact that we lost a lot of experienced people. Um, and it, and it continues to like, if, if I may, there just doesn't seem to be a lot of solutions, uh, showing up because again, it, it's such a massive expense for government. I mean, it, I, I'm not sure the numbers, but I have a feeling it's the majority of the budget is being dedicated towards healthcare and that's growing with each, with each budget being announced. And I'm just wondering, like, and, and as you mentioned, I think the two-tiered system is an interesting one because you, you know, you mentioned we need still need the oversight, um, but during testing, perhaps we could probably utilize two-tiered a lot more, user fee-based systems. But the other thing that you mentioned, which I find very interesting, is that two-tiered system um, will still catch when it comes to acute care. Like the the private will not be able to still look after those people that have those that are very sick and and really need that and have comorbidity and and there's a lot of uh, symptoms and issues and and that's still going to arrive at the doorstep of universal health care. Yes, it, that's kind of what you're yes. saying. Yeah, very much so. Um, a good example would be even for the more difficult cataract patient, if they if something uh, were to change in terms of the patient condition shortly after the cataract surgery. So those clinics would not have a bed to put the patient into right. to follow up on. And that, that's a very simple example of it. And so uh, cataract surgeries and being contracted out make sense depending on the setting and the, and the contract that we put in place with the private provider. But in the end, if you've got a more complicated patient, um, what does that mean? And... Uh, in terms of being a provide that aftercare support and the universal system would be able to help those individuals. Each diamond is uniquely different. It is special and beautiful because of its rarity. That is the power and magic of a diamond. A new store in Kelowna is open to showcase this symbol of love and commitment. Herrera, fine jewelry. The name in Latin means rare and exceptional. Much like a diamond is extraordinary and rare, just like her. Herrera. Fine jewelry. Featuring Takuri, Noam Carver, Burks, and Simon G. Jewelry. So I have a friend in, in Alberta, and he's got access to a private clinic. What that private clinic does is, is look after his whole family. So they, they go in for regular checkups, they go in for testing, they go in for screening. And then if there's something that shows up, they show up at the hospital. And so it it, it does with that system. And, and again, I'm not suggesting, you know, we look at that tomorrow, but, but it seems like that system again is releasing some of the pressure off of the Alberta healthcare system. It's releasing some of the pressure off doctors and wait times. And cause there's a whole bunch of different factors when mm -hmm. it comes to even a screening or a test 
And I think even that in itself, and, and that might just be a small teaspoon out of a bucket, but it seems like that's, again, releasing some of this extraordinary tension that is being created right now. Oh, and I agree with you. I think there is a role for the private sector in terms of assisting with the healthcare demand that everywhere is facing. Uh, and I, I think an, ex- an example of that would be what we're seeing with the government recently in terms of giving additional responsibilities to community pharmacists. If you look back historically, I mean, even 20 years ago, community pharmacists would, wouldn't be involved in giving immunizations. And immunization would be done either in a clinic or in a physician's office. So there is a small example of how the system can adjust and is moving towards, do we have the right person doing the right job? Uh, and community pharmacies have really picked up an extraordinary amount of work for uh, helping the community to adjust during COVID, and not only just medication management, but the immunizations, all the follow-up that they're doing. And so um, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a great example of how governments, say, are really looking at using the right professional to do the right work. Um, and if that individual is working in the private sector, uh, such as a community pharmacy or, or a private clinic, as you mentioned, in terms of your friend getting their tests done in a private, I think that that is something that that is definitely an option to be considered. But I think there has to always be the oversight, because mm-hmm. I think that if there isn't the oversight, we run the risk of access becoming too expensive. And I think that's where the advantage still is of the universal system, where we know that if you go to a hospital, that you will be cared for, and it's not going to be a huge out-of-pocket expense that's going to break you, versus a U.S. system. We often look at the U.S. system and how they've got so many more uh, hospitals, so many more uh, particular specialized pieces of equipment, the CTs, the MRIs, etc., but there's also a huge expense that either you as the individual have to pay for your own health care, or if you're lucky enough to work for a company that pays for your health care insurance, uh, then you have access to it. And, uh, you know, that was part of, I think, what Obama was trying to do is to look at a more expand the universal system in the U.S. So it's, it's, I find it kind of an interesting thing where Canada is looking at how do we bring in more private partners in the U.S.? They're looking at how do we make our system more universal? Interesting. So they're trying to get some of us. We're trying to get some of them. Exactly. Um, and, and would nurse practitioners be, be part of this, um, I guess, solutions that we're looking at? Because I, I'm hearing more and more about nurse practitioners. Yes. So the nurse practitioner most definitely has a role to play. Um, so a nurse practitioner is a nurse with advanced specialized training. And depending on the type of training, they may also be involved in helping with diagnosis and uh, and prescribing, depending on where their work setting is. They are especially important, I, I see, in more rural areas where it's difficult to recruit physicians. And we see... Uh, nurses in those areas, but we also see nurse practitioners in roles that are very specialized, like cardiac care here at KGH. They've got uh, diabetic care. Um, So they are working hand-in-hand with the physician and really helping to be um, an extra uh, pair of hands to help care for their patients. So very much another piece of the 
piece of the puzzle to make healthcare more accessible and less cumbersome for patients because sometimes the physician doesn't have as much time. A nurse practitioner may be able to spend more time with you explaining, you know, this is the care and the steps that you need after you see your physician or may actually be doing the follow-up on behalf of the physician. Are some of these solutions like nurse practitioners becoming, I guess, is more is there more ideas and innovations around the table, it seems? Like, are you hearing, were you hearing that around the table of just look at everything because we really need to address this issue of, of again, a, a crunch happening, which is happening right now, which, again, we talked about probably a decade ago. But are, are some of those solutions getting a little bit more audience now because they're, they're fundamentally looking at all different ways of, of addressing this? I would have to say yes, that healthcare leaders and governments are looking at all solutions that they possibly can. Uh, I think part of it is when you look at all of the solutions, if it's a case of training of new individuals, what is the lag time between that training and before they can get it into place? If there are certain legislative changes, what are governments doing to facilitate those changes? Um, I already mentioned the example of of the work that pharmacists are doing in a community. Again, those are part of all of a sudden governments have said, and the various associations said, yes, this is now within the scope of practice of that particular profession. So various uh, uh, professions are looking at how to expand their roles. But I think we have to do it very cautiously so that we, when we give someone an additional responsibility, there is the proper training and the confidence that they're doing it well and not actually causing more harm to the patient. Right. Each diamond is uniquely different. It is special and beautiful because of its rarity. That is the power and magic of a diamond. A new store in Kelowna is open to showcase this symbol of love and commitment. Herrera fine jewelry. The name in Latin means rare and exceptional. Much like a diamond is extraordinary and rare. Just like her. Herrera. Fine jewelry. Featuring Takuri, Noam Carver, Burks, and Simon G. Jewelry. You brought up the northern communities and the rural communities. And those are the ones I think of when I uh, I think of having adequate care. And, and that's got to be a struggle because, again, you have to recruit GPs, you have to recruit nurses, you have to yeah. recruit specialists that can look after the, the widespread uh, society that, that lives in these communities. That has to be a massive struggle for healthcare because, again, we're having enough trouble as a hub <laughs> – with high housing costs and everything else. But in the rural sectors, I mean, that's got to even be exponentially tougher. Right. Um, absolutely. And I think, you know, where this problem isn't just a health problem. And often in the more rural communities, you will see the community themselves get involved. And let's say the, the example of wanting to recruit a physician um, I'm aware of communities back when we lived in Alberta where they would look at offering very um, generous deals on office space and all other kinds of incentives to try to attract those physicians or those healthcare professionals into their community. So, it, and that's something that the healthcare system itself can't do. And so, the it's so important, I think, for dialogue to be occurring between the individual health authority for that particular area 
in the community, especially when they're struggling to keep their emergency departments open or they want to bring in one or two more physicians to provide care for that community, to really have that constant dialogue and say, when we bring in a physician, we just don't bring in the doctor, we bring in the entire family as well. And so it's important that I think the community rally around that uh, in, you know that recruitment and say what else can we do to help to integrate that family into our community because that's what's going to make people stay right because you, you never can just look at the doctor you have to look at who else is with them and and how can we make them feel settled and comfortable and make sure that they're going to stay a long term yeah. is there any kind of like I don't even know when you ask a doctor to join let's say it's a uh, hundred mile house or or Prince George or Dawson Creek or something like that. Is there kind of a term associated with that? In other words, we're going to make this, you know, we're going to sign a contract, but is it two years, five years, 10 years? I think it varies with the, with the recruitment uh, and, and the specialist you're trying to bring into in the community. I mean, ideally you'd like to look at a longer term recruitment, a contract, um, but it really depends on what the comfort level of the individual uh, and what the expense of what sort of incentives you're putting on the table to bring that individual in. Um, but I would say, I mean, typically it would be, you know, two years plus. You don't want anybody, you know, going through all that energy for a less than a two-year kind of scenario. And you know, you're hoping that you can get them settled in within that two years and that their family likes to be living in your community and, uh, that this becomes a win-win for both the community and the healthcare professional that you've recruited and their family. Is there a, a number, and maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but is there a number of how many patients a doctor, like a median number that doctors across BC look after? Is it 200, 500, 1,000? Like, I have no... I'm sorry, I don't know that information. Yeah, yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't speak with any confidence about that. Okay. And how, how do you think, John, we're doing in comparison to Alberta and, and its healthcare system? Because they have different modifications. I would say in a lot of levels, they're the same. But would you give us, like, are we the same? Are we lacking a bit? We don't have the same resources of, of Alberta. Like, how would you rate us? I, I think that the ability to bring in physicians is very much area dependent. And so when I worked up in northern Alberta and I worked in Grand Prairie for a number of years, recruitment of physicians to rural Alberta was a huge challenge. Recruitment of not just physicians, I'll say, but every healthcare professional to northern Alberta was a huge problem. Even though the contracts in northern Alberta were, um, I'll say, paid a lot better than what they do in BC. So it wasn't just the pay that makes the difference. It's... There's also about, as I mentioned, it's about integrating that individual into, into the community and making them exciting about wanting to live there. Mm -hmm. um, when you ask specifically about are we doing better or worse in Alberta, I think there's depends on, on the pocket. If you're looking in the Okanagan area, I think because of what the Okanagan as a geography has to offer makes it very exciting for um, allied and other health professionals to want to come to the Okanagan. Um, but what may be a detractor for them may be the cost of living. Mm. And so all those things come into play. It's not just a, 
hey, we've got we've got a great program here in our in Kelowna. This is for you, but the cost of living and what their how their family can integrate into the community is probably as big or bigger than what the program can offer at KGH. I think we should offer every one of the doctors that come here a paddleboard. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, one thing I did hear about from a, a friend who moved back to Ontario, his his wife was a doctor, a GP. She had a practice here. And she said that in Ontario, they uh, the medical system there pays on any patient that's within your practice. And in BC, they pay based on the, the patients you see during the year. But Ontario had more of a weighted system towards even if you have an act, if you have an active file, we pay you on that. And she said she made more money in Ontario than she did in BC, and she had to work a bit harder. And, and I don't, I don't know the details, but any thoughts about that? Um, I, I think again, it depends on the physician practice. Um, the medical services plan is the fee schedule that our physicians in the province of BC are paid on, and. Whether or not that is fair or unfair uh, is really dependent on the physician's practice. Um, I think, for, for, you know, the plan does look at trying to consider the time that physicians are spending with patients and being properly uh, paid for that time. Uh, and I think there's always that negotiation that occurs between physicians and governments about you know, am I being properly compensated? Um, and I think as there is no doubt, though, that if you've got a practice that has a more senior population, and that is the number of your patients, it is difficult, I think, for the family physician to say, I'm sorry, Mrs. Jones, we can only look after one thing today. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? That's a difficult conversation to have with your patients as a family physician, but yet they may only be compensated for that one concern. Right. No, and, and I, I get it. I mean, it's always an ongoing negotiation, I would imagine. Um, and speaking of those, uh, I, I've seen the signs in my neighborhood uh, bring back our heroes. You've probably seen them too. Mm-hmm. We have, and again, media, who, who's to say with media, if, if it's true or not, but um, the last count I saw was over 2,000, up to 2,500 healthcare professionals. And that could, that doesn't just mean doctors, nurses, yeah. it could mean a whole, it could be the people that look after laundry. I, I don't know. But oh, your thoughts going forward for, for these people that are on the outside looking in? So there's two points. One, are you talking about the people that retired or people that left their particular professions and bringing them back? Yeah, apparently because they're still mandating that they need to be vaccinated in order to work. So my my position on that is that the government had mandated vaccinations uh, for the protection of the public as a whole. And it is very difficult to, to protect the public if you're not following the mandates of our government in the sense of getting the vaccinations. And so I would say that those individuals made their informed choice. And now as a system, as a public health care system, they have made their choice as well in saying that if you want to work in this setting, 
that, vac- that this level of vaccination is required for two reasons. One, to protect yourself because you are going to be exposed to patients who have this particular disease or illness. And two, to protect the other patients who don't have COVID or whatever it is and to prevent more spreading of that particular illness. So I am in favor of vaccinations. Um, I believe that they are have saved millions of lives since vaccinations have been invented and continue to feel that the mandate for it is a re- if this is a requirement of employment, that you know that going in and then you as an individual can make the choice. And, and it's interesting to me because, uh, you know, I heard on Vancouver Island, there was two oncologists that left based on the fact that that was a mandate and they moved to another province based on the fact that that province, and it rhymes with Malberta, <laughs> did not require those same uh, mandates. Is that a concern for us as a province? Is the fact that our neighbors next to us do not... It is a concern because it, it does send a mixed messaging to the population and to professionals as well that, you know, that you can shop around for an air, that a space that will be more in alignment for uh, whether or not you like to work in a vaccinated setting or not. My preference would be that there would be more of a national approach to this. Uh, vaccinations and and the requirements for employment, especially when it comes to caring for patients uh, in a healthcare setting, and so I, I would hope that we would be developing more of a national strategy on that versus one province uh, mandating one area and not mandating in another. Right. Any any final thoughts, my friend? This has been a, a wonderful discussion, and I so appreciate you sharing your insight. No, this has been uh, it's been a while since I've had an opportunity to, talk, <laughs> to spend this much time talking with anyone about health, and I I welcome this opportunity. Thank you. Well, thanks so much, John. I I do appreciate you the time, and uh, and to the listeners, thank you for listening. And uh, again, um, if you go on uh, Cloner Now podcast and uh you'll see uh, all the rick and friends episodes on there thanks again for listening and take care